Welcome to The Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination, Extra Blooms Edition. These Extra Blooms episodes are revisits of our past guest. My co-producer, Angela Washington, and I very often find ourselves sharing updates with each other. Oh gosh, did you see what that guest was up to? Did you see what they did? Did you see that? Did you see that? And we figured that if we get excited seeing what new things they're accomplishing, that you might too. So these Extra Blooms editions are that, a little extra where we revisit with a past guest to see what else has gone on since last we spoke. Maybe they've got a new passion project, a new idea, a new book, a new accomplishment, and we like to share that. So feel free to go to themorningglorieproject.com to listen to any previously aired episode. And we love it if you write a comment, share it out, give us a review, and let others know. Of course, you can always subscribe to The Morning Glory Project across all of the podcasting platforms. That way you just never miss an episode. So welcome to the Morning Glory Project. I'm glad you're here today, and I know that you'll love hearing from our Extra Bloom guest. I'm ever so happy to welcome back to the Morning Glory Project to share her Extra Blooms, Laura Davis. Laura is the author of seven best-selling nonfiction books, including the seminal book, Courage to Heal, which I have to tell you is a book that I regard as a life-changing book in the lives of so many people and survivors of abuse. And I believe it was the seed that was later blossomed in the Me Too movement. Laura is a teacher of writing workshops in Santa Cruz, California, and she does transformative writing retreats in, this is going to make everyone jealous, in Tuscany, Peru, Bali, Spain, and other international locations. Someday, someday, Laura. As the creator of the Writer's Journey Roadmap, Laura sends out a free evocative list of writing prompts by email each Tuesday, and you can learn more by going to lauradavis.net. The reason she's back here for Extra Blooms is that she is launching her own memoir. Welcome, Laura Davis. Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project and sharing your Extra Blooms with us today. Oh, I'm really delighted to be back. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, now, when I spoke to you last in our first conversation, the title of your memoir then, pre-publication, was Wholehearted. And I understand it's undergone a transformation. Can you tell me about that? <laughs> I, I, I'm a little bit privy to this. So so full disclosure here, I was lucky enough to be one of the early readers of this memoir in progress. So I know a bit about it. And so I'm going to ask these questions, but let you share the answer. So tell us about the transformation of the title. Well, you know, titling a book is um, sometimes people start with a title right away. And, and in all the books I've written, sometimes the title came first. Um, like I wrote a book on reconciliation earlier called I Thought We'd Never Speak Again. And that title came because as I interviewed people for the book, I kept hearing that sentence over and over again. I thought we'd never speak again. And it just really captured, you know, the emotional reality um, of the situation. That was a pretty easy title for me. And other ones, I've gone all the way through till the end and still not had a title. And with this book, I I worked on this memoir for 10 years, and I didn't have a title till probably about eight years in. And a couple of years before I finished the manuscript, I was um, with a dear friend, Karen Zellin. We were at Tassajara. I was teaching a writing retreat there, and she came along to participate in the retreat and just be my companion. And we were laying on, on the bed talking about this book. 
And she came up with this title, Wholehearted. I mean, we were just discussing it, and that word came out, and I thought, oh, that's it. That's the title. You know, that that really evokes the emotional essence of the trajectory of the character, you know, which is me. It's a memoir. Mm. And so I was thrilled, you know, to finally have a title, and it just felt really good. I loved the word. I, I always wanted to have a one-word title. Um, so I started telling people that was the title. And, you know, as I sent the manuscript out to beta readers like you, and I started uh, talking about it online and, you know, everywhere else, I used that title, Wholehearted. And it really uh, kind of sunk in as like, this is it, you know, and, and my baby had a name, basically. <laughs> and and then I knew I was going to need a subtitle. Uh, that became clear as I got closer to actually publishing the book, because Wholehearted was not really, it could be about anything. And so I thought it had to we had to know it was a mother-daughter story. Um, so anyway, and then I, I had always thought of this. The, the book is about my relationship with my mother over the course of 57 years. And I, although we had an incredibly troubled relationship, I always thought of it as a love story. And so I, the subtitle I picked first was An Unlikely Mother-Daughter Love Story. So that's when I sent it off. I sent it to, um, I ended up publishing this book, Hybrid, um, after publishing all my other books with mainstream presses. And the two publishers I was considering, you know, that I really got down to doing my due diligence with, in our initial conversations, separate from each other, they both said, you know, we might have to do something about that title. And you're thinking, no, that's the baby's no, name. My, well, <laughs> yes and no. You know, I, I, I had that response on the inside, but I've learned that often publishers, their business is selling books, and they often know things that I don't know. You know, and that I should, it doesn't mean I have to do everything they say, but although depending on the publisher, sometimes you do have to do everything your publisher says. But in this case, with a hybrid, I had a lot more latitude, a lot more choice and a lot more freedom, but I listened. And the argument they made, which, you know, convinced me actually pretty quickly, was that wholehearted, for one, it's the it's the term that really has been used by Brene Brown in all her work. Mm. And that if I use that term, everyone would be thinking about her. And if you Google that term, it's about her. And then there also were like a dozen books with that title. Mm. And you, you can't copyright the name of a book. So you actually can use a title that has been used before. But, you know, who wants to have a book that has the same title as a dozen other books? Right. It's for one thing it ha if it has one obscure book in history or something, but if it's a dozen right. of them. There was, gotcha. there was a lot of them. And so, um, and, and if you Google wholehearted, you know, it's it's not like I would own that territory. Right. You know, it would be kind of hard to find and people could easily get confused. Um, but the bigger question, that that was a huge part of it. But the other part is that, you know, the purpose of a title, This is, I mean, this is about producing a book, which is very different than writing a book, but the purpose of a title and the purpose of a cover both the, the image on the cover and or the lettering, everything about it, and the back cover, the only purpose is so that people want to explore the book more. You know, so that if they, if, they, if it's on a bookstore shelf, they're going to pick it up. Um, if it's, you know, a recommendation coming to them online, they're going to take a second look or they're going to read a little more or they're going to scroll down at least to the description of the book. And you also, you know... You don't want to give your story away with your presentation of the story. You know, people read because they want to find out what's going to happen. And and this is a story. It's not, 
an information book, although people will walk away with, I hope, a lot of inspiration and also even some practical skills um, about caregiving and other other things. So I was convinced, actually, that, you know, I needed to create more suspense with my book title. More intrigue. More intrigue. Yeah. So so then, so I was, I was willing to let go of it, but I, I felt like there has to be something better. <laughs> you know, it, I, I'll give it up if I come up with a better title. But I only had like, by the time I selected my publisher, um, Girl Friday Books, um, I had, I don't know, maybe two or, it was on a very compressed schedule. I signed the contract in February, I believe, end of January, beginning of February. The book was coming out in October. That's for a book to be produced. That's a, a very, very short window. Yeah, folks outside of book publishing don't know how long the process is. <laughs> right, how many steps. And I was also um, recording an audiobook at the same time, so I was layering in this other set of deadlines. Um, most people don't do that. They don't do it simultaneously, not not if they're recording it like I did. Um, but anyway, I I only had maybe two or three weeks, and so I decided to crowdsource the title. So... I went on Facebook, both my own page, and I'm also part of a um, a group, a private group of memoir writers, women memoir writers that has about four thousand members. And in both those places, I, you know, basically showed I showed the image that I had thought of um, putting on the front of the book, which did not end up on the front of the book. <laughs> um, basically, for the same reason, it revealed too much of the end of the story. You know, it was too happy of a photo. <laughs> basically. It didn't have enough tension. It had no tension. It had the resolution. It was all in that picture. So I, I sent the picture and I, I told the story of, you know, the title and a little bit, you know, a little synopsis. And I asked for suggestions. And in the next week, I got 500 suggestions. <laughs> I watched this process <laughs> from the outside. And I thought, I thought you so brave for being for opening it up like that and and gathering and so I know that you went through lots of iterations and this and this and finally you had to say okay I've got enough <laughs> I've got right. enough and, and it wasn't just some of them were great a lot of them even went further in the direction of being like kind of too saccharine sweet mm -hmm. telling everything in the title and and you know so each day I would come up with like a list of what I thought the best ones were you know so um, at one point it was what love requires, a mother-daughter reconciliation story, you know? Um, and then another time it was a long and winding road. And then I tried playing off the title of my first book, Courage to Heal, The Courage to Reconcile, and ultimately decided that was too derivative. Reconciliation without reservation. One of my favorites was um, one my daughter came up with, End in the End. I just Ooh. love that title. But then I looked it up, you know, it's a Beatles song, and then I looked it up, and it was already being used. It had a, a new book that was getting tons of press um, in 2020 was uh, reviewed in Rolling Stone, and it was a book about the Beatles. I thought, okay, that, that's too new, and that book is, you know, that's what people would think about. <laughs> so so where did you end up? Tell us, <laughs> tell us, you have to tell us what the real title is. Okay, all right, people all right. can find it. Well, okay, so I... I I started to think that maybe I didn't want such a um, kind of a spelled out title that maybe I wanted something a little more poetic, you know, uh, a little more literary because it's a literary memoir. And I, I went to um, Ellen Bass, who is my co-author for Courage to Heal and a you know lifelong friend. 
And she just said, I was kind of overwhelmed. And this was the day before I had to turn in the final title. And she just said to me, she said, Laura, you're suffering from death by committee. <laughs> that that <laughs> choosing a title is not a popularity contest. Um, and, and I had come up with a title with my mentor who helped me with my coach for the book. And it was Two Queens, One Throne. <laughs> a volatile mother and a relentless daughter struggle to love each other before it's too late. And Ellen just said, that is a horrible title. <laughs> don't do it. She said, She's right. I agree. Don't, don't tell terrible. people who your characters are. Let them discover the characters. And then I, I start thinking about the fact that there's a lot of um, fire in the book, a lot of images of fire. And I, and, there, and fire is a, a major uh, part of the plot, which I'm not going to tell you that now. You'll have to read it. But th there is a lot of fire. And so she suggested this line of Robert Frost, some say the world may end in fire. And I just thought, oh, my God, that's great. I love that. And so I, that was one of the titles I sent to the meeting uh, with my publisher the next day. And I thought that's going to be it. That's going to be the title. Some say the world may end in fire. And um, then I sent it off. And that afternoon, I got an email from this woman named Karen Bar Bartholomew. She had been a beta reader of mine. And even more interestingly, she's a, a nurse practitioner. And she had she lives here in Santa Cruz, where I live. And she had actually been a visiting nurse for my mother. So she knew my mother. And she wrote back, and she provided the actual title. She said, what about The Burning Light of Two Stars? And um, I sent it to the publisher, even though it was late. And they loved it. And I loved it, and it's just grown on me over time. Well, so tell me what the title means to you, The Burning Light of Two Stars. Which, by the way, I really, I, I too, I liked Wholehearted, you know, early on, but I like this so much more. I think what I really love about it is um, it's intriguing, um, and that my mother and I were these two incredible forces like these two very powerful, intense women who were at odds with each other. And we both were public people. You know, my mother was an actor, and I'm an author and a, you know, a writing teacher and have done so much in the public space. And we were these two stars uh, burning against each other, really, uh, but creating this between us, this incredible light. So I, to me, it was, it was just such a great title. Well, and what I what I loved about the story is, as related to this title too, is there was this this awe of your mom was an awesome woman in in not the the vernacular way of saying that she she inspired a lot she was she was quite a dynamo of her own for she had a force as do you and and I I think of these kind of two two stars sometimes colliding and sometimes coexisting and sometimes competing with each other's light and sometimes enjoying each other's light. Usually colliding. Usually colliding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just so I'm clarifying to our listeners, the title of the book is The Burning Light of Two Stars, A Mother-Daughter Story. And can you tell me, the, the other part of this is you've been such a facilitator of other people's stories for such a long time, you know, the, the courage to heal was certainly not that you weren't in that story at all, but it's been about kind of helping others to remember, uncover, share if they choose, sometimes publish, often write their own stories. And 
I'm wondering what it's been like for you to go from facilitating the stories of others to publishing your own. It's been a, an incredible journey because, you know, although I have before this had six books under my belt, actually seven because I had a, a self-published failure in the middle of my career. But, you know, all those books were basically in the realm more of self-help. You know, they were inform they were non-fiction books, they provided information, they provided, you know, a step-by-step -step guide to whether it was parenting or reconciliation or healing. And although I was in there and there were little tiny bits of my story, my story was way in the background. And what was dominant in the front were information that would help people, kind of a guidebook, and lots of other people's stories. So I was going to reveal in this book so much more than I had before. And I remember in a, a, an early draft I wrote, I brought it to a colleague of mine, Susan Brown, who I've taught with at the San Miguel Writers Conference, and we became good friends. And she's very blunt in her feedback. And, and what she said to me is she said, Laura, this is not the courage to heal. This is the courage to reveal. Mm. And, you know, basically what she was saying is, you know, you're making yourself look too good. You know, you're, you're, you're covering your ass too much. So, you know, for me, a lot of it was a process of revealing more and more about myself and my flaws. And, you know, one of my biggest goals in writing the book was that, you know, I, I had three different rounds of beta readers over the course of years. And there was only one question I asked each time, uh, to, the same question, and that was, how does the mother come across? Because I really did not, I, I, I always tell my students, you don't want to write a vendetta. I mean, you might want to, but you're, you shouldn't publish a vendetta. No one wants to read someone's revenge story. And so it was really important to me that my mother be um, a complete three-dimensional character and that I be the same. And it was more challenging, really, to write myself that way than to write her that way. Well, that's that's always the challenge, right? <laughs> Is how how does one portray oneself in your memoir? Because on one hand, you don't want to be self-degrading, and on the other hand, you don't want to be self-aggrandizing. So there's this telling the authentic truth and and revealing. I, I love that the courage to reveal to peel away those natural and healthy barriers. We don't walk around wearing a, a sandwich signs about our brokenness, or we shouldn't. And as I, as I read the story, I became aware of the story behind the story of The Courage to Heal. Right. It's, this book is really the prequel and the sequel to The Courage to Heal. Mm. And so I think, you know, for the millions of people who read that book, um, this book will reveal, you know, in page-turning detail, in a very intimate way, how I reconciled with the mother who betrayed me and how I came to care for her during her final days. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, lots of people, the rift between my mother and I was huge. You know, it was, it was on the scale of, you know, betrayal. It was, it was at the high end of betrayal, uh, what happened. But I think many, 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 many millions of people have rifts in their family that maybe are not as severe, but still really get in the way and are an impediment. And when you're dealing with an aging parent, there's that question of like, can I show up? Should I show up? How can I possibly get past 
this betrayal that happened to deal with the the needs and reality of this person's situation. Hmm. And so that's that's really what the book addresses is, you know, that question of can I open my heart again when there were lots of really good reasons to keep it shut down? Well, the other aspect of the story that fascinated me as a I don't I don't like the word fan, but as as one who has so deeply appreciated the courage to heal, both on a personal level and as a therapist, I, I probably, I've, I'm probably responsible for a couple of hundred of book sales. <laughs> Let's just say it that way, because I have shared the book so many times. But the, in addition to the core of the story, which is of course the mother-daughter dynamic, there's also this peek into what it was like to, as you put it, to become famous for the worst thing that ever happens to you. And also that when The Courage to Heal came out, you know, I was one who appreciated it and spread the word and shared it and used it and for myself and for others. But I didn't even think about it then back in what, what was it published? 1988. 88. I wasn't even thinking about then what the impact of the world on you and Ellen was, that there were people that did not want to empower the voices of survivors. There were people that did not want these stories to come out. There were there was opposition and fierce, ferocious opposition and what it must have been like for you. That's the piece of the story that I think is also, in addition to your intimate story about your mom, the behind the scenes story of what it was like to put that book out into the world. Can you say just a bit about that? When I look at what's happening in the U.S. right now, what we're experiencing is a huge backlash against social change and racial justice and, you know, the empowerment of all people. And every time there is forward momentum, forward progress um, to help people move towards freedom, equality, empowerment, there is always a backlash. So, you know, what happened to us um, is not unexpected or unusual. I mean, I certainly didn't expect it. But when I look at it now, um, it, it happens every time um, people stand up and are visible enough to kind of be seen. And Ellen and I, we didn't anticipate it, but we ended up writing a book that became this talisman and this very, very public symbol of empowerment and, you know, helped launch a movement. And that wasn't what we were trying to do, but it is what happened. And as a result, we were targeted. And, you know, you could read more all the details of it um, in the memoir, but it was, um, I think the most powerful thing from that experience was one that we withstood it. And the other is that we were not alone. I think that the story of the support that came to rally behind us is really a, a heartwarming story. Mm -hmm. uh, that that when when you stand up, you know, it seems like you're alone when you're you're the author of a book or the co-authors of a book, and all the um, ammunition is being aimed at you. But we did have a, an incredible wedge of support behind us. Uh, all the the people helped by the book really wanted to support and stand up for us. Well, I think I'll say it personally, as one who was a champion of this book, whom you did not know at the time, by the way, I don't mean to sound like you and I knew each other then, we did not for many years. But as someone who appreciated it deeply, I can tell you that that, that was an outpouring of gratitude, that for people who had survived abuse of many kinds and sexual abuse, certainly, to be validated, to have a voice, 
and to see others who were who were their champions, that was an outpouring. And I'm so grateful that you did that. You know, you, know, you referenced Brene Brown earlier, and th- there's a quote that I like of hers that I'm going to amend a little bit. And she said, you know, don't do not think that you can be brave with your life or your work and not disappoint anybody. It just doesn't work mm-hmm. that way. That's right. Only for you, and I also say, if, if you're really brave with your work and your work is groundbreaking in the way that yours has been, you're also going to make some people really mad. And Mark Nepo talks about the the current roar against progress. And he, he calls it the last roar of a dinosaur trying to not to go extinct. Oh, I hope that's true. I, I so hope he's right. <laughs> I hope he's right too. But I think of it that way. And I think whether it's little dinosaurs or big dinosaurs, I think that, like you said, the opposition to progress and justice, the social justice and those kinds of things is that roar of the, we don't want to lose what we've had, you know, the, the roar of the opposition. So can you tell me a little bit about what it's like now, just as we're just coming to a close here, what it's like for you to have people now, it, the book's just coming out, so it hasn't gone public, public yet, but you've had lots of beta readers and you've had lots of pre-readers and certainly your publisher and editor and those folks. What's it been like for you to have this part of your story become more revealed? Uh, you know, it feels good. It it feels actually it's thrilling because I didn't publish anything for 19 years. And that silence in part was because I felt there were subjects I couldn't write about. You know, that we, mm-hmm. we all have these core writers, I think, often have core material that we revisit over and over again. Artists too. And for me, this this core relationship with my mother and the process of healing over the course of a lifetime and how that changes and evolves has been something I've been writing about and thinking about for 35 years. Mm. But I, out of respect for my family, I could say out of respect, but also um, because I had worked so hard to reconcile a lot of relationships in my family that were broken after The Courage to Heal was published, I was reluctant to publish again, and and this time in a, revealing much more intimate material about the very things that had caused the estrangement in my family to begin with. Right. So I had to really come to terms with that, and that took me many years. And I actually waited until my mother died, and I waited until her whole generation had died. But there still are, you know, a small pocket of my extended family who will not be happy about this book. And I I realize I may be losing them all over again. And I had to, it took me a long time to to reconcile that with knowing that there would be thousands and thousands of people who would deeply resonate with this story Mm. and be inspired by it. And that I I ultimately chose that I needed to be an author again Mm. and that I couldn't keep not putting my work out in the world. It felt like an important story that needed to be told. Well, it is an important story that needs to be told. And it needs to be told by lots of different voices because this feeling of having an intimate relationship with one's parent or sibling, or it could be, you know, in different families, it's different folks. But I think that lots of people have this relationship with a loved one whom they deeply love and care about, but there is genuine reason that there has to be distance or guardedness or or that there's pain between you that not all 
there's not always a happy Hollywood ending to this stuff. And, and what I appreciate about this book is that it's really honest. It's, uh, it's honest in its love. It's honest in the conflict. It's honest about the pain. It's honest about the joys too. And you've done a beautiful service to those who have relationships that are complicated, <laughs> Laura. And as always, I want to thank you for sharing your story here. I want to let folks know that, that, the Burning Light of Two Stars is available. What's the, what's your favorite way to have people get this get the book? Oh, march right down to your local independent bookstore and buy it. You know, um, these stores need our support. In fact, if you go to my website at lauradavis.net, there's a link where you, if you want a signed copy from my local independent bookstore, if there's not one where you live, um, there's a link there to buy it from Bookshop Santa Cruz, and I've signed those books. So that's just a little bonus. Great. Well, and you know, you can certainly buy it at that big online bookstore if you choose. It's available there. It's available wherever books are sold and and the audiobook as well. There's a I, I recorded the audiobook and if you like to listen instead, um, you could find it wherever audiobooks are available. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project once again and sharing this extra bloom with us because I'm delighted to share the story of this story and to see what seeds it plants out in the world and what grows from that. Congratulations, Laura. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, this is an Extra Blooms episode, but I've got a couple of extra ones to go. One is that Laura let me know that if you wanted to read a sample of her memoir to just put your toe in the water, and I'm convinced then you'll want to get in and swim, you can go to her website, lauradavis.net slash that's forward slash chapters, and you can read the beginning of the story. It's beautifully written and such a deep and important story. So I certainly invite you to do that. So there's the extra bloom for you. And I have an extra bloom for me. And that is this. I've come to find out that being a published author has brought me enormous riches they're not in my bank account, as is often the case with authors. That's not how I've made my living, and very few authors are able to do that. But what publishing and being engaged in my personal passion of storytelling has done for me is that not only has it let me express my own stories, but it's let me connect with other storytellers, with other people who share the passion. And indeed, in the case with Laura Davis and others that have been on this broadcast, I've been able to encounter people that are my personal heroes and literary idols and people that I've just so deeply admired who have entertained or inspired or informed me in ways that I couldn't have otherwise had those experiences. So whether you're a writer or not, being engaged in the thing that is your passion, doing what you believe in, what matters to you, and whether that's a hobby or a passion or a project or a philanthropic effort, whatever it might be, the dividends for that are in the people that you meet that share that passion, the people that inspire you, the people that you inspire, and your peers as well. That's a whole field of extra blooms for me <laughs> that I appreciate every day. I can look around my office and see the titles, literally hundreds of titles of hundreds of books of authors I've met because I pursued my passion. 
I invite you to do the same. Thanks so much for listening to this Extra Blooms episode of The Morning Glory Project. And I hope that wherever you are, you are finding your way to bloom beautifully. Beautifully.